Welcome to Surviving Society, uh, live from the BSA. We are really excited to be joined by Smina Akhtar from University of Glasgow. Hi, Smina. Hello. Hi, everyone. Please tell us all about your paper and who it centres and what you were trying to argue. Okay. Um, My paper was about a death in police custody case but this time in Scotland. We don't really talk about deaths in police custody in Scotland. So um, this was about Sheku Bio, who was a 31-year-old uh, trainee gas engineer who lived in a very, very white area in, uh, in Scotland, a place which is about one and a half hours from Glasgow. Yeah. And uh, he was killed whilst being restrained and arrested by police. Um, in the early hours of the morning of the 3rd of May 2015. So, um, obviously, deaths in police custody has like received a lot of attention in the US, less so in the UK, and particularly less so in Scotland. Oh, nothing in Scotland. Really? Yeah. So, like, what what happened? Do you know? Does anyone know what happened? Or like, I think in the paper you were kind of you were kind of trying to tease out like the different narratives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we do, we do kind of know what happened. Um, basically, he had been to his niece's birthday party the night before with a friend, and according to his sister, he left about ten o'clock. And there's a kind of a gap, like we don't know what happened. And and then there were reports that um, neighbours had phoned the police about a black man acting erratically, carrying a knife. And this was just yards from his house. It was about seven in the morning, and um, and the police arrived. And within thirty seconds, he was restrained on the ground. But he died before he got to hospital, or or just as he got into hospital. Um, with lots and lots and lots of different injuries and uh, the lawyer, the family's pathologist concluded that he had died from positional asphyxiation which is it, it's a kind of a common conclusion in deaths in police custody cases particularly of black people um, because the Institute of Race Relations uh, Dying for Justice uh, report found that it's actually more that happens more so in black people because there's actually more force used against black people who die in police custody than white people. The first thing that popped into my head when you said death by asphyxiation is more common was that it's harder to blame someone for, like, blame a specific person. Or, well, well, the actual police pathologist concluded that there was no cause. They couldn't find a cause of death. Again, that's really common in deaths in police custody. When there's lots and lots of... Um, different non-lethal weapons being used. What they what they do is a really really legal terminology. It's a legal process where they're like, well, which blow actually caused death? We don't know. Therefore, we're going to say we there's no conclusive there's no cause. We we can't find a cause. So for me, for my paper, I mean, my, my actual, I'm doing a case study on Shakibaya, but looking at it in terms of resistance, how communities resist state violence. So I was focusing less on the case, but obviously I, I had to know about the case, but I was really interested in the campaign. 
the justice campaign and how that got how that came about what made people join what type of people joined the campaign what kind of activities that they did what factors influenced what they did but my paper on Wednesday was very very much about how the state contains these campaigns and these activists and why they do that so I focused on on that because um, when we talk about deaths in police custody and I've read a little about deaths in police custody but this discussion about oh well there haven't been any convictions why and um, but there's less discussion about well the state's role in why there haven't been any convictions. Mm. Um, so that's what I was really looking at. So I was looking at the police as a repressive state institution and um, and the types of strategies that the state uses along with the media to ensure that it kind of closes in the system, the whole system kind of closes in and protects those police officers that kill, basically. So I was using kind of quite a lot of Stuart Hall you know, because we, I mean, I, I just find his analysis really, really useful. When you said that kind of, that thing where it's a common thing, and I, that, I kind of, that kind of has a resonance with me because yeah. when, especially when police see me or, or when guys see me, they, see, they think black people are strong. Like, like there's, oh. a, there's, a use, there's an overuse of force because they think I'm su- like supernaturally strong. Yeah. Or, or I don't feel pain in the same way as a normal human being. And this kind of bears, it kind of, this kind of links to that kind of colonial attitude where black people don't feel pain or they, they somehow kind of, their muscles are super dense. And this narrative comes through to people. They say it to me in a, on a normal basis, on an ongoing basis, oh, you're really strong. I'm, I'm no oh, stronger yeah. than... But, but we got that. We got that in the press. Um, not just in the press. You had the media framing. So the media really racialised this. They, they said he had... He'd taken zombie drugs. He had a knife. It's, it began with a big knife. Then it just—it was just a knife. Though he did not have a knife when he was arrested. That's very, very key, right? He did, there was no knife. This is, and this is obviously a theme that we've seen with when men, when black men are killed by the police, that weapons go missing. Supposed weapons go missing. Like thinking of um, Mark Duggan here yeah. with the gun. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm just sat here sort of in disbelief again, like li- remembering listening to your paper because I just find it so painful because listening to Tisa talk about like being racialized as this strong person and then obviously in this case, that means that those tropes and those labels can then result in the death of the black person, which I think is, yeah, is... Yeah. is but really... the state's representatives themselves, like um, the police lawyer actually said, look, this was, I wish I had the quote here, I don't have the quote here, but there was a, a, a petite policewoman was attacked, kicked and punched by a very large, strong black man. Sheku was five foot ten. He weighed 12 stone. He was average height, average weight. One of the police officers who arrested him was 25 stone. Um, so there's that, there's that uh, kind of dialectical relationship uh, constructed between the victim, um, who incidentally was only in hospital for 20 minutes, so I'm not really sure how injured she was, um, whilst Sheku uh, died that day. I mean, yeah, is what is really extraordinary is like 
in any other situation, that's clearly murder. Yeah. But it's the kind of like, well, it's okay because the police duty is to protect that. You know what I mean? Like, protect, yeah. the, the police duty is to protect white women from black men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's that institutional containment as well, yeah. where the, the normal processes of the legal system actually act as a form of containment. So the police investigation and, and um, or review commissioner in Scotland does not have the power to demand that police officers in that situation give statements. Is there no, is there, is there an IPCC? It's the equivalent of an IPCC. Okay. It, it's the equivalent. 73% of the staff in that park, as we call it, um, are ex-police staff. And the two officers, the two park staff who investigated, uh, who did the investigation into this particular killing, they had 30 years of service at senior level within the police. So they're totally independent and unbiased, clearly. Oh, absolutely. So this is, <laughs> this is what Stuart Hall talks about when he talks about institutional containment. Mm -hmm. It's built in. It's not something that happens separately. It's built in. So that's why I wanted to look at this as the, the, as the state that does containment. Because I don't think it's really talked about in that way. Deaths in police custody aren't really talked about in that way. I think it was really powerful that you started off your paper by, by saying, I am not debating whether this was a racist incident or not. I'm going to just tell you what happened after and how there's why there's been no justice because of the way the state has reacted or not reacted in the case. Um, yeah. I mean, this is about race and class, obviously, um, because it's not just black people who are criminalised by the state. It's white working class people as well. And now it's white working class people with mental health problems, mm -hmm. men and women in different ways. So it's that's why I, I wanted to be very clear. Look. I'm not here to prove whether this was racist. Uh, what I'm here to tell you is this is how the state operates in order to maintain its power and its position and its authority. You know, the legal system works within um, the boundaries of a hegemonic class system. There are places that we can win. There's that judicial space because the legal system and the police are set up to be um, independent. So Stuart Hall talks about that there's a judicial space where the working classes and black people can, and black people who are working class, obviously, yeah. um, can fight for their own struggles. So we have to use that judicial space. And this, but this is what's, what upsets me now. And when you say that is, when we do use that space, so we use that space in 1981, so you have the Scarman report. We use that space after Stephen Lawrence was killed with the McPherson report. And each time the state will tell you, yes, we make mistakes and this is what we can do and this is what we are going to do. And we say we come up with institutionally racist, whatever the terms, but yet the state maintains the status quo. Yeah. Regardless, and we have those big years, so 1981, 1993 to 1999 when it comes out, these are big spaces in time and, and each time we celebrate and we say this, we're going to change, we're going to force the state to do this, but then the state maintains that but state But we're well. also in, some, in a lot of these de deaths in police custody campaigns, the onus is on the family. Mm -hmm. 
right? For several reasons. You want to give the family the lead, but the types of activism that we do are very much within that legal system as well. Um, so we kind of contain ourselves because we're absolutely desperate. You know, the families are desperate to get some sort of conviction. So they think that the only way they can do it is within that legal system. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of contain our own activities and we're not very bold. And I'm not really, I don't have the answers, but, you know, there are lots and lots of questions there. Um, what What's the status of things like legal aid in Scotland? Because obviously in England, the ability of working class people to fight back against the state is severely curtailed by lack of funds. Absolutely. The case has never gone to court. The the Lord Advocate decided that it wasn't that that they weren't gonna um, prosecute the police. So it took it's taken what, three and a half years for that decision to to be taken. On what basis? Um well the report hasn't been made public so we don't know. Am I right, Smina, that um, they, the press also said later about him being um, from a Muslim background as well? Yeah, it took a few days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a few days because some of the headlines said, well, you could have been a terrorist because what they found out was um, Sheku was actually Muslim. Sheku is a Muslim name. He was from Sierra Leone. Um, Although he wasn't a practicing Muslim, mm. but the fact you know he could have been a terrorist. Oh, it, it, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's, and it's so interesting looking at how that sort of anti-black racism then is Mutate. mutates yeah. into this new like Islamophobic racism, which then eventually justifies the non-prosecution, no justice. Well, we don't know why because the report hasn't been made public. But up till now, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, it's crazy. It's been, um, it's it'll be four years next week. So it, it took a year for the report to be produced. The report was given to the Lord Africa. It, it took him two years to decide that the police weren't going to be prosecuted. So the family are now asking for a public inquiry, uh, demanding a public inquiry. Because the case has never gone to court, this is these were internal police processes. The family have had no funds. They've had to fundraise. They've got a high-profile lawyer. They had to do their own, um, get, get a pathologist. They've had to employ all these experts. It's cost thousands. And on top of that, they're grieving for a family member who's been murdered. Yeah. Like a husband, a father. Like Yeah, he's got two, two yeah. little boys. But because it's contained in the, in the idea of a, of a legal process, legal process, take time and it's almost it's it's, in, it's not it's impersonal isn't it so the, the state's impersonal it doesn't care it just it's a machine well, le- hang on a second legal i i just read a headline earlier on today i think marsha rigg had put something up on facebook about um was it a white person who had stabbed a police officer and he's been charged Really? And, I, and I actually commented, I was like, that was quick, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was quick. It's personal. It just, it's the facade of impersonality, I guess. It's basically what the lawyer has said on several occasions and what we say is, well, if, if Sheku had been the one that had killed a police officer or it had been an ordinary person who had killed some other person had killed a police officer would it have taken four years for the police to decide that he wasn't going to be prosecuted Mm -hmm. no no (laughs) and it's just yeah 
you're not human you're subhuman you're yeah. dispensable you're yeah I don't know if I... I feel like I've remembered this correctly, but when I went to this event on Southall, this lawyer was talking about how since 1990, over a 1,000 people have died at the hands of police or in police custody and not one police officer has ever yeah. been prosecuted. No convictions in the UK. Yeah, absolutely no convictions. There have been lots and lots of little policy changes. So it's almost like, you know, his wee... His wee um, yeah, from the table, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, a, f- a few scraps, a li- few victories, and uh, it, it really is about silencing, isn't it? It's it's the the phrase that we use is justice delayed, it's justice justice denied. Um, Janet Older has been fighting twenty one years, so this is a very very young case. It's only four years. Four years is a long time to. And I'm saying, this is what upsets me. I don't, how do you do this? Because for example, the state is so powerful. So kind of notable examples like the Birmingham Six, the Guild Four, the state will go to many lengths to deny justice. So how, how do you resist that? Knowing that the state, when it wants to, can push, can make you disappear. Oh yeah, absolutely. But we also have to remember that the state has been losing legitimacy for so many years, like Grenfell, <laughs> Hillsborough, and so on and so forth. I mean, we could reel off a whole <laughs> list. So does that mean that we have more space? There's more people are listening to us. Um, so we have, to, we have to continue fighting. We have to keep resisting. Because, um, but we have, I, th- I think the issue is about connecting those resistances and the, and the form of resistance that we, um, that we participate in. And at the moment, I think all these campaigns are quite disparate. I mean, although there have been so many deaths in police custody, um, there are not that many active campaigns because it takes a lot out of the families. That's the thing. It's like the burden of campaigning is massive. And to constantly be fundraising, constantly be fighting different court battles, demanding different inquiries, and like reliving that pain over and over again, that's the thing. All those inquiries require evidence and they require people to stand up again and again, give their personal testimony. And like, we know that personal testimonies can just, like, you can just be told, like, we don't believe you. And that is, like, what is more painful? <laughs> like, And the health impacts on the families. Mm. You know, it's a massive, massive health impact. Because I've spoken to some of the families um, when I, I was in Manchester a couple of weeks ago at a conference, so I met some of the families, and that's what they talked about. You know, they, they can't continue campaigning non-stop. They have to take breaks. They've had breakdowns. They've had uh, impacts on their physical health, on their mental health. I mean, the one Stephen Lawrence's family. Yeah. Like, terrible. Like, you know, it does terrible things to you. Clark family. But like... Class is so integral to this as well, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and as we've just heard with Imogen Tyler's plenary speech on the stigma machine, how these all operate, and you've got the media as well that will start dehumanising the family. That plays into the state's inability to contain, as you say, and avoid justice. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is very, it is a class issue because it is only going to be working class black people. It really is only working class black people who are killed by the state. Um, So 
it's absolutely integral. It's absolutely necessary that we talk about that. But they are the ones that are, have the least power and have the least resources to fight back. You know, they can't afford these legal battles. You know, Shaku's sister said, look, I've got a family. They have children of their own. Um, how long do they keep fighting? But that's what the state is um, depending on, mm-hmm. isn't it? That they don't fight. They can't. Just delay, 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 and soon people will forget. But we won't forget. You've been listening to Surviving Society at the BSA with Smina Akhtar. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back with a few more episodes, so don't forget to tune into those. Thank you.